Hello and welcome to the Fresh Air Sci-Fi Show. I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And uh, it's blisteringly hot today. So if you folks could let me know if my fan is coming through, I will turn it down so it doesn't disturb the stream too much. But if not, oh. <laughs> have you been finding yeah. it, Dave? Hot. Yeah, that's one way to put it. I was a bit of a nutter and went and did a 20k cycle today. <laughs> I went to the co-op. <laughs> you know, I actually found whilst I was on the bike, it was actually cooler than just being still in the heat because, well, the wind obviously going against you, but also it was a, there was a nice breeze out there. I rode all the way down to the beach and around and came back up. And yeah, the second I got off the bike, I was like, Oh my god, I want to die. <laughs> yeah, the self-generated wind of the bike riding is good. <laughs> yeah, I I wish I could somehow do it. Well, I suppose I can with that. But you know what I mean? <laughs> it was yeah. definitely a lot better than the fan happens to be. But yes, hi Evans and LB, nice to have you here. <laughs> I think I think L Evans has already answered the entire topic for us. He says the answer is to not be rational. <laughs> okay, that's good. I'm going to bed then. Good night. <laughs> so tonight's topic is not just on the, the title of uh, to be rational or not, but it's more centered around the uh, rationality thesis and the rationality debate. Dave, would you like to take it away and tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah, it's part of the presentation as well, but basically um, there's a debate going on about whether or not humans have the capability to be rational. And it, it, it's basically based off the claim that humans are fundamentally rational. And there's two camps to this. There's camps that argue that no, humans are not fundamentally rational. They may be capable of being a certain level of rationality, but they'll never actually be rational. And the other camp that says, yes, humans are fundamentally rational. Called so, pessimist and optimist camps. So anyone out there right now, have a think about what camp you're currently in. And Dave is going to be presenting some slides that will further enhance this conversation and give you a bit more detail uh, about the what well, everything about it. So before we get on with it, I'll just read out this comment, although we don't necessarily have to answer it right now dave and we can see what we uh, think of it right at the end but lb says i heard from another atheist friend of mine alistair from twitter he said that rationalism is a dying breed as well as others of epistemology and empiricism empiricism is becoming the main one completely different topic yeah completely different topic there you go <laughs> and rationalism is yeah, it's about how we arrive at ideas and facts and things like that. Whereas this is more about our capability to be rational. There you go. I hope that answers it for you. So it's a topic for a different day, LB. We will come back to it, though, if that's something that you are actually interested in. Or maybe come back to it at the end. But it's uh, <laughs> kind of off topic for what we're going to discuss tonight. Yeah, sorry about that. I probably should have been a bit more clear. 
So as we can see from my fancy title screen that I learned how to do today, <laughs> the topic is the rationality thesis and the rationality debate. Has that changed? It has, yep. Okay, nice one. Okay, so what is the rationality debate? Now, there's two statements here. Aristotle calls man a rational animal, and Freud says that man is irrational. So which of these is the correct statement? What would you say? What would I say? I would say that we can be both. I'd say that we are more rational than purely in instinctual. That uh, we've learned to override our desires, our fears, and emotions. So we've managed to reason our way through problems, but sometimes things like our emotions, or you know, being tired, or having too much caffeine, or or whatever, can cause us to act in an irrational way. I think some people are have a default of being more irrational than others. And I think some people are incredibly rational, almost too rational. <laughs> They've lost almost a bit of what it is to be human. Yeah, good answers. Basically, these two statements can, ex can coexist at the same time without actually contradicting each other. Because when Aristotle talks about man being a rational animal, what he's talking about is the idea that we use rash we use rationality to guide our lives and make our way through the world we make rational decisions about where we're going what we want to eat how we want to live in society our intelligence and our rationality guides us whereas when freud says man is irrational he's speaking about something else than aristotle what he's talking about is that man can never achieve perfect rationality because like you say emotions and things like that can get in the way and that's basically one of the discussions of the rationality debate what does it mean to actually be rational and as you can see that that there is divided into two kinds of camps like i said at the beginning there's two camps within the rationality debate those that argue that man is not rational and those that argue that man is fundamentally rational. And that is basically the rationality debate. This discourse, ongoing discourse between the two camps. So is, is, is the big divide actually down to the fact that they don't even agree about what they're talking about with rational there? Are they saying you need to be absolutely rational to be considered a rational being? No, the pessimist camp argues that there are fundamental flaws within our cognitive structures and the way our brains work. That means that we are fundamentally irrational. And, and what, we, we just never, get lucky sometimes. Yeah, we, we can never achieve the demands that the rationality, the standard picture of rationality asks of us. But then there are those, yeah, there are those in the optimist camp who say that the standard picture of rationality demands too much from us. Yeah, I, I suppose it's like we, we've said when we've been discussing rationality, 
people can only be as rational as they can be. You wouldn't expect the same level of rationality from a three-year-old as you would a 20-year-old, for example. Exactly. So the rationality thesis is the claim at the heart of the discourse surrounding the rationality debate, like I say. The aim of the debate is to examine and answer the claim. Most people are fundamentally rational. So what does it mean to say that we're fundamentally rational? Um, can we be fundamentally rational? There's experiments from within psychology that go on that test people's rationality. And that then is used to further the claims for and against this. I'm just uh, laughing at Icarus. <laughs> uh, Icarus, you do it to me every week, and thank you for constantly uh, amusing me. He says, oh, that's the wrong one. <laughs> he says, fundamental flaws in our brain? That's nonsense. God intelligently designed our brain to become flat earthers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. <laughs> component of the rationality debate, as I said, involves experimental data. And so there's been a lot of experiments set up that test people's ability to rationally solve various puzzles. And this data is used to argue for and against the claim that people are fundamentally rational. But it's also been used to argue or create other theories within psychology as well. Like there's been work done on the way our cognitive structures work and how our cognitive structures process information in the world around us. So the standard picture of rationality, this is what people within the discourse and within epistemology and the like generally are talking about when they say that someone is rational or they're reasoning rationally. And the standard picture is to be rational is to reason in accordance with principles of reasoning that are based on the rules of logic, probability, and so forth. And if we're to consider this standard picture to be correct, it's not just a description, it's also normative. So if we want to reason properly, this is how we ought reason. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's what we've gone gone over a lot with, with that when we've had our, our discussions. But it's also one of those things where if someone doesn't know the rules of logic and things like that, can they actually reason rationally? Yes, because they might not explicitly be using them, but they might implicitly be using them. They don't know them, but they still happen to chance upon reasoning that matches these rules of logic which again makes sense because if we actually think about the, the the rules of logic they are things that we've essentially discovered they are conceptual things in that regard that just work so therefore someone can think logically without knowing these rules they would almost be adhering to them in an unwritten rule way rather than oh that's what i'm doing yeah, I mean, it'd be like, imagine if you got a football and you played kickabout yeah. and you didn't 
you didn't know what football was. You just had the football and you happened to set up goals at either end and, you know, that kind of thing. You would be playing football. You just wouldn't know it. Yeah. Okay. So one of the tests in okay. the rationality debate. You okay there? Yeah. They're making me laugh in in the chat right now. Evans has just said, rationality is just the lack of belief in irrationality. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Carry on, Dave. I'll try my best not to uh, burst out laughing at the chat anymore. <laughs> no, it's all good. Okay, so like I said, in the rationality debate, there's experimental data and there's experiments run and they these test people's rationality and ability to be rational one of them is called the linda experiment and it was devised by tversky and kahneman and it tests your ability to reason using probability theory so the test is this linda is a 31 year old oops, i mistyped that uh, Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Sorry, the screen of my laptop covers the bottom quarter of the screen <laughs> of the <laughs> things I've got the slides posted on. <laughs> Okay, so we're given this information, and then yeah. we're asked the question, which of these statements about Linda is most probable? I won't read through them all, because you can kind of see them, but which, based on that information, which of the eight seems to be more probable when describing Linda? I think that, I mean, if we're saying more probable, out of all of it, she's active in the feminist movement because you said she's oh. concerned with things like social justice. And I know that you said she's bright yeah. and everything, but being bright doesn't mean that you, you, you're necessarily doing any of these jobs. The only thing there that speaks to social justice is the feminist movement which is on two of the two of the options but one of them is talking about it being a a bank teller and and also she's a member of the league of women voters which i don't think that that is enough for linda personally i think she'd need a bit more and active in the feminist movement seems the most likely to me okay good answer a lot of people believe it or not give answer eight that was a very popular option i can understand from, why uh, from the participants yeah because uh, because it said that she's she's bright and stuff like that they went oh well what's the best job on there yeah but i mean even then i wouldn't say that's necessarily an amazing job for someone who's supposedly as bright as i would have inferred from that bit and i think the only thing that it, it that we could really lean towards is that that feminist movement piece. Okay, and do you know what the problem with answer eight would be, besides the things that you mentioned? 
Well, other than the fact that... No, other other than the fact that I can't, I don't, th I don't think she'd necessarily be a bank teller, and I, I also think that she might think that there's problems with the entire bank and economic system because she's concerned with those sorts of things. Okay, uh, the problem is that two distinct things cannot be more probable than one distinct thing. Ah, uh, well, uh, that makes sense as well. Yeah, so it it can't be more probable that she is just X. More probable that she is X and Y than it is that she is just X. Yeah, that makes sense. So that shows a fault with people's reasoning ability using probability or mm. um, problems with seeing probability without being able to work it out, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, it's a lot easier to pinpoint one thing than to say that she's doing two things, even if yeah. two could be true. I mean, eight could be true, but the probability oh, yeah, yeah. of it is That's diminished. It. Not, yeah, we're not saying what does she resemble, most resemble. We're saying what's most probable. And of course, in probability theory, if you say there's a 50% chance that it's going to rain tomorrow and it's going to be 40 degrees, then you can't also say that there's a less than 50% chance that it's just going to rain because that seems to be less specific and there seems to be more of a chance, more of a probability for just that. And it's what's known as the conjunctive fallacy. Hmm. Conjunctive fallacy. I don't know that one. Yeah. Okay. And then one of the next big popular tests is called the Wayson selection test. Now, what happens here is people are given four cards and a hypothesis that they have to then test by turning over a certain amount of cards. So in this case, we're given the hypothesis, if a card has a vowel on one side, then it has an even number on the other side. Now, you have to turn over as few cards as you can to test and falsify that hypothesis. So which card would you turn over? I, well, am I only allowed to, to turn over one? Well, you can start with one and then keep going, but you're supposed to do it in the most efficient way possible. I would probably do... And so if a card has a vowel on one side, then it has an even number on the other side so it's not saying anything about odd numbers because a vowel on one side sorry so looking at that has a vowel on one side even number on the other so is that saying by by entailment no because it could have a, a non-vowel could also have an even number on the other side so in as least as possible i would probably do e and seven Okay, which one would you turn over first? That's the, that's the main question. Well, E. Okay, that's the most common answer. But, theoretically speaking, you should turn over 7 first. Because you're okay. trying to falsify. So, if you turn over 7 and it has a, a vowel on the other side... Yeah, that makes then sense. ...then you falsified that hypothesis. Whereas if you turn over the E and there's an even number on the other side, you've just, you know, sort of proven the hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. 
And so they, these so they, two... they were the right cards, but the wrong order. Yeah, basically. And uh, most people do these exact same things, like I did when I first turned over. And my thinking was, if I turn over E first and it doesn't have a, an even number on the other side, then I falsified the hypothesis. But of course, it, if you turn it over and it's, you know, got a vowel on the other side. number, yeah, you've just proven the hypothesis. That's all. Lucas just chimed in saying, this is the null hypothesis. If you want to know why he's bringing that up, check out the stream that we did with him last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as I said, the results were kind of surprising for the people performing the tests because they expected people to not pick number seven and not pick number one because that seems to be the rational thing to do if you're reasoning according to the standard picture of rationality i wonder I, like I, say, I, I wonder why though that we we are that there's something in us that goes well if it's saying this and this you know what what about us makes us think that that's more likely Tversky and Kahneman give an explanation for that, and it is part of what I'm going to discuss. Okay. <laughs> See, I think of these things already. <laughs> Even though I don't think according to the standard picture of rationality, apparently. <laughs> okay, so another couple of things worth noting about the results of these tests. Often, when the participant was told, no, you've done it wrong. Here's the correct answer. And here's why that reasoning was correct. The people would still feel pulled to their original answer and they would feel compelled to defend their original answer rather than just go, okay, I fucked up. Yeah. I'll learn to do better next time. That, that's is that is do you think that's like a, a pride thing though i know many people who can't admit they're wrong and almost try and convince more people when they're shown that they're wrong that they're they're right and they should believe what they're believing you know in the face of, of that i can't be seen as wrong i'm a super smart rational person i think that it, that is probably a part of it and probably plays a bigger part in some than in others but the thinking is that it's not just that there is something within the way our brains function and our cognition works that causes us to be pulled towards those answers until we actually learn to change our thinking right so once we become more competent and learn to change our thinking we're no longer pulled to those answers that makes sense yeah or at least okay. not so pulled to stick, sticking to the to same answer. To yeah. <laughs> um, and another interesting thing is that in the case of the waste and selection test, if you gave somebody a... Oh, are you oh. there? Yeah, you just cut out a second there, Dave. Okay. Um, I'll... Go back a few seconds. In the case of the waste and selection test, there's an interesting thing that happens. If you take away the abstract hypothesis 
and you put some real world scenario in there, like one example is they were asking the best way to de to determine whether a social rule has been broken. Like if you are drinking in this pub, you must be over 18. And they selected the right cards in the right order to test that hypothesis. So the, when they had something to ground it in rather than it being... Something uh, tangible, yeah. Yeah, um, so and, then they've had a bit of an experience with it. They can, you know, they can identify with it. They don't necessarily have to think so hard about it, I guess. Yeah, um, and it, it only applied to certain circumstances as well, though. Like like I said, following social rules, um, the breaking of rules, determining whether someone is cheating, kind of like stuff based around fairness and you know that kind of thing so if we think about these things it kind of leaves us with a pessimistic outlook on human rationality doesn't it if most people get these things wrong and most people feel compelled to keep giving the same answer over and over again until they actually spend time learning to correct their thinking, then it seems that we have this kind of problem when it comes to principles of rational decision-making based on the standard picture. We just don't seem to be rational people. There, Evans has actually said something um, akin to that, although I think he's misspelled one of his words he says yeah but if we have to learn how to be rational then doesn't that mean we are rational beings but i think he's saying doesn't that mean we are irrational beings so if an irrational being would you say an irrational being could learn to be rational or do you have to be rational just and suffer performance errors to actually become rational i think it's a mix of both i think the term fundamentally rational has a kind of, it comes with a kind of baggage where we think, well, that just means that they're rational by default, by grounding. It is part of, part and part of their, who they are. And as we can see, in certain circumstances, we seem to be more rational than in other circumstances. We don't necessarily have to learn to be rational in some some circumstances. It just seems to be part of our nature. Whereas in more formal settings, we seem to have to learn to improve our skills, or at least most people. Hmm. And I you think, think that's something like this later. Oh, okay. I was just going to ask <laughs> you think pressure, stress, and all those things. You know, you're out of comfort zones and etc. But if you're going to get yeah, to yeah, it later. No, well, they can all affect it, absolutely, because another part of your brain is taking over and performing your thinking for you. And our brains are energy-heavy machines and, or machines, cogs in a wheel, I guess, but they're very energy-heavy. And our brains use a lot of shortcuts in thinking, which, as we'll see in a bit, is one of the maybe one of the reasons why we do badly on the waste and selection test and the linda test so the pessimist view isn't shared by everybody 
obviously, because then there would be no debate. <laughs> um, and it, there's a lot of philosophers and psychologists that disagree. Um, there are a lot of people who argue that the results of the experiments do not support taking that pessimist view, that we just have problems in our thinking, and that means that we're irrational. We should be looking at it more optimistically, and perhaps even in a different way. It may be that the standard picture of rationality is just too demanding, and it doesn't accurately reflect what it means for humans to be rational, and it ignores big parts of what it means to be rational. Is that along the lines of what we were discussing before about, you know, that everybody sort of has a, an upper limit and they might have a contextual upper limit for the situation as well? So not just the difference between a three-year-old, 20-year-old and 50-year-old, but actually, you know, a 20-year-old in situation A may not be as rational as that same 20-year-old could be in situation B. Yeah, pretty much. And some people are just better at thinking than others. Some people are better at running than others. Some people are better at painting or music. You know, humans, they might have a baseline, but that's only because so many of us and we can collect so much data. But it's not uniform. We're not robots built in a factory you know, sort of thing. <laughs> Though Evans does say, if we just change the definition of rational, then everyone can be rational. That's a brilliant solution. Yeah, have you ever had a conversation with Chris Mann? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that exact same thing. <laughs> so I, I don't think Dave is actually saying to change the definition of rational. He's just saying it could be there's, there's, there's parts that that strict line isn't fully capturing all of it. Like I was saying that there could be a context, a contextual part to it. So we could say a three-year-old taking their dad's word for something just because my dad said is the best way they can reason at that point because, you know, that's the person that's looking after them and they've always been right as far as they know with all the situations so far they haven't been they haven't gone to school they haven't learned all the things that you would at school so they don't have uh, as much ability to reason but they are being as rational as they can be in that situation whereas a 20 year old who just took my dad said for absolutely everything would not be acting rationally so it, it's just adding a, a bit of a, a contextual element to it do you have anything you want to add to that though dave no, no, that sounds right. It, it just may be that rationality is more nuanced than saying it just is this formal thing, this mathematical idea. It may be that rationality, there's a consequentialist element to rationality. Um, there's, like you said, contextual. It, it's just, it may be more nuanced than just saying, if you're not doing these things, then you are irrational. Oh, he was just shitposting anyway. <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay, now I think he deserves to have a discussion with Chris Mann. And we're going to send him to one of his live streams. <laughs> He's followed it up, though, with rocks are rational because they can't be irrational. <laughs> They're irrational. <laughs> uh. And it's got the word rational in irrational, so therefore they're rational. 
<laughs> okay, so I need to learn to stop knocking my mic. So a couple of things to note here is that when it comes to the pessimist arguments, they're not arguing that people are poor at all forms of reasoning or that most people are just not rational. What they're arguing is that the rationality experiments show that there's some fundamental flaw with the way our cognitive system works. That means at a fundamental level, we are irrational. And the optimists don't have to commit to the idea that people are rational all the time or that people never make mistakes. All they have to be able to argue is that at some fundamental level, they are rational. Yeah, I mean, okay. to be honest, they, they, they could both be right about certain people as well, couldn't they? There could be yeah. people that are fundamentally irrational and others that are fundamentally rational. And that yeah. doesn't mean that, you know, if someone is fundamentally rational, they can't fuck up. We all make mistakes all the time. Performance and errors. Yep. Exactly, and vice versa. Just because someone is fundamentally irrational, it doesn't mean they can't occasionally go, aha, and reason correctly. Or reason rationally, um, should I say. I, on my Alexa, I play a game called Song Blast, just because oh, I, I like those kind of poppy sort of quiz song games. And it's like a name that tune thing. Mm -hmm. And if I'm tired, most of the time it'll take me half the clip to be able to guess and get the words out but if i'm wide awake i can usually get them within the first few beats so it shows that how tired you are can affect your performance at quite a lot of things and if you're distracted you're not going to hear the song until you focus on the song and it regains your attention so performance can affect all kinds of things including rationality Icarus says that he thinks on a fundamental level, we are just a blank canvas with our neural networks. When we are babies, education is what makes us more or less rational. So he's talking about it being a, a, a trained thing, a learned thing. You're, you know, and I do think that that could be a big part, you know, the way we, we learn to think from a young age and through school. And I think that that is a big part of, of why some of these tests that you might see about rationality and people thinking could be flawed because it's like IQ tests, you know, they're, they're definitely biased for the, for certain people. You know, it's like the old adage, if you, if you try and judge a fish on its ability to climb trees, you know, and <laughs> it's the same sort of thing. There's a bias to IQ tests. There are going to be people who are living in a certain area and grow up a certain area, and you give the same test to someone in a completely geographic location, they are not going to do as well at it, and they're going to look like they have a, a bad IQ. That's one of the big issues with IQ, and it could be a problem with a lot of the rationality tests too. Yeah, and I would absolutely agree with that. It like I said, we could just be judging the kind of rationality going on in the in the wrong way. And that's there are philosophers and psychologists who kind of agree with that. Okay, another important thing to note here. A lot of the time when somebody says that something is not rational, they seem to take not rational to mean irrational. 
But just because something is not rational doesn't mean that it's irrational. It could be irrational. Mm-hmm. Like the sun's the sun going across the sky, you know, as just going across clouds floating through the sky. The door to this room, none of those things are rational. They're not rational. But I'm not sure the word irrational would apply to them. Yeah, it's it's a, an, another way to think about it. It's a, a common thing people actually get wrong with moral and immoral and amoral. And people think that amoral is someone without morals, but what it's actually pertaining to is something that doesn't necessarily relate to morality in relate that way. It. And that's the same with irrational. It's something that doesn't necessarily relate to rationality in that way. It's something that you're you're not reasoning through. So rationality and irrationality, judgments, you know, back to what you said at the beginning of the standard model, reasoning using the rules of logic and probability theory. And, and you know, irrational would be something that no reasoning is required. And I think one of the, yeah. we, we could talk about certain things that we experience ourselves, certain feelings we get, you know, we don't necessarily reason our way into anything sensory, do we? No, exactly. Um, think of the weather today. If you step outside and you feel that sun on you and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's an irrational action because reasoning, rationality, it's got nothing to do with you just enjoying the feeling of the sun on your skin. Same thing, eating something you like, you know, or smelling a really bad smell and going, ugh. There's... Listening to a tune that makes you want to bop around the room, but rationality is just not involved. Or um, feeling sad because you're just having one of those kind of days, or feeling happy because you just had one of those kind of days. Again, rationality wouldn't apply to those kind of things. Um. So Luke actually wants to say something on this uh, blank canvas thing. And he's saying it's more like we have the outline uh, of paint by numbers when we are born and our education upbringing fills that inappropriately or paints the outline entirely. And I suppose from that, we, we do have certain instinctual things and we are prone to certain behaviors. Some people are more prone to some than others there are certain talents that people have that that make them appear more skilled there, there are people that just find it really easy to draw from the from the get-go whereas others really struggle struggle with those skills so you know may, maybe not a completely blank canvas in in that regard yeah that's a a, a fair critique luke he also says, but if amoral is without knowledge of morals and irrational is without rationality, then atheist is without belief in God. Checkmate, belief in not God this. Well, no. <laughs> uh, in, 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 so, I mean, words are obviously polysemous, but amoral isn't necessarily without knowledge of morals. It's just not relating to morality. So drinking a glass Same of water is, is not relating to morality. Me taking this glass of water and smashing it over Dave's head, that would be something that we could judge as immoral. But me simply going, is, you know, no, it's completely amoral action. Um, Unless you're the boss of Nestle and has bought up all the water from the <laughs> <country and laughs> yeah. purchase exorbitant amounts. So, yeah. 
There you go. And then, and so and, and and along those lines, a rational is obviously not relating to rationality. So if you were to use the a in the same regard for for atheist, not relating to belief in God. Which, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't it really work. work because, yeah, it's relating to not believing in God. So yeah, it relates to belief in God. Yeah. So no, it doesn't work. <laughs> 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 yeah about the blank canvas thing i'll be coming on to something like that later on as well but when we think about rationality we think about it applying to actions and beliefs you know whether a belief is rational whether our action is rational and um, and actions and beliefs can be thought of in a few different ways it, an action or belief can be rational an action or belief can be irrational irrational or we could just simply have made a mistake. If, yeah. Well, oh, can you hear me? yeah, yeah, I can. But if, if we're saying simply made a mistake, is that in the sense that it could have been a rational action, but you didn't have the correct information, enough information, so you made a mistake and how you're like acting that. it? So when you're saying it, it, it's simply a mistake, it could still fit into rational or irrational but it's then like, you know. Sort of. Imagine you're at the local leisure center when they reopen or whatever, and you've gone in there and you've done your training and you come out and you think, ah, I could do with a glass, uh, bottle of water. And you go up to the vending machine, you put the money in, and you hit the one and then accidentally hit the five instead of the four. Have you... Have you acted irrationally? I mean, you wanted the bottle of water. You you should have pressed the number four. You just missed. But you accidentally hit five. Yeah. Have you been irrational? No, no, not at all. So or in that regard, made a mistake. So the action. Okay, I can fully get on board with an action being a mistake due to a performance error because you know it should be right. It's there. But how many times have you gone picked up something and walked away and gone? That's not what I was trying to pick up and have to go back yeah. for it. So I, I get that. How can a belief be a mistake in the same regard? Um, okay. Imagine when you see a car go past and it looks just like your brother's car. And you put your hand up to wave to him, and then you see the guy in the car, and it's not your brother. Have you acted irrationally, or did you just make a mistake? Did you just ha hold the wrong belief because you made a quick assessment based on the car? Yeah, though I'd say in that quick assessment, you'd probably had incomplete information and then there's a form of rationality in there if you reason oh well it looks like my brother's car his car is that color it's that type of car it's that shape it you know and you don't know the number plate so you can't tell i'd yeah, say but it that... wasn't your brother and if you'd have waited those few seconds longer to take a look in the window you acted on incomplete information which you could argue is irrational because you should be waiting on all the information yeah unless but you don't know there's because yeah, I, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, you you can have uh, mistaken beliefs because you've taken in incorrect information, misunderstood something, and it's not to say that you've been irrational. You just you made a mistake in what you were believing. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, 
So this is something that we've been discussing already, and that's when it comes to reasoning and making mistakes, these can be considered in the form of competency and performance errors. So like you said, you could be tired, you could be angry, you could be thinking about what you're going to do next weekend, and you're just not fully invested in the task that you're performing. So you make errors. You've not been irrational. You've just not given it your all. You've, you've made performance errors. And the same could be said for um, competency. It could be that you're competent in certain kinds of reasoning and not competent in other kinds of reasoning. So think of the ways and selection tests where people were able to figure out how to test whether rules were being broken, but not figure out which card they should flip first to falsify a hypothesis. They're just not competent in that kind of thinking because they haven't really engaged in it and practiced it or learned it. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, rules is one of those things that we're uh, drummed into us from a very young age. It's the rules of your parents, the rules of the school, rules of law, whereas, you know, statistical stuff, probability theory, it's not really anything that's done. I mean, over here, you can do an elective at A level. You do a little bit of it in, in maths in secondary school, don't you? But generally, it's an elective at your, your A level stage if you're going to be doing statistics. So the average person hasn't actually been subjected to, to this sort of thing unless they've gone out and learnt it themselves. So again, that's why certain things would be easier, like the rules, over the statistical stuff. Exactly, because we've learned to process them in a more natural and unthinking way. And to go back to your point about not learning these things, it's not generally something we think about in our everyday language either. We don't... When we see somebody cross the road, <coughs> we don't say, oh, well done on following the rules of logic and using probability theory <laughs> to calculate that you didn't get run over. That's a very good successful crossing of the road. We just say he crossed the road and he was smart enough not to do it when there was a speeding car coming at him. Yeah. And <laughs> Could you imagine if we actually spent that much time judging everybody like that? <laughs> yeah, we'd never get anything done, would no. we? Okay, so I came up with an analogy the other day. I showed it to you about computer programming and performance errors and competency errors. Now, if we think about rationale, if we think about how this might apply to something like rationality, you can imagine a guy who is a pretty good computer programmer. Um, but to say somebody's a good computer programmer, it doesn't mean that they always program perfectly all the time and never produce code that has bugs in it. Professional software rarely has any bugs in it. People are tired. They work to crunches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and because they make these performance errors, we wouldn't say, oh, well, you're not a computer programmer then. No, definitely not. Yeah, they're, they're making performance errors doesn't invalidate the fact that they're computer programmers. So in the same way, it could be that people are generally rational and that sometimes they make these performance errors. So it would feel a bit counterintuitive to say 
it doesn't mean that somebody can't program if they make errors and then go on to say, well, you're not rational because you make errors in your thinking. No, definitely not. Yeah, I agree. And when it comes to competency, now you think of the amount of computer languages that are out there. There's like Forth, C++, C Hash, Java, JavaScript, Pascal, Modula 2, um, Assembly. There's just all kinds of languages. Um, I mean, there's even different types of the same language. So if you think about uh, SQL, so you've got uh, MSSQL and MySQL and Oracle and is it Progesture SQL or something like that? And they all have slightly different nuances as well. So for example, just in, in MSSQL, you'll use an order by command. And in MSSQL, it's sort by, I think. If I remember MySQL, it's been a long time since I've used, done any MySQL stuff. But in that regard, if you know you're, you're, you know, you're really good at MSSQL and you're doing there and you put an error in where you use an order by expecting the language to be the same because it's basically the same you would get an error there just because you didn't know of a a nuance in this programming language that you're not au fait with yeah you just don't have the competency in that particular language and imagine now you could program in sql say you could do all the versions of sql but then you were given pascal or Visual C or, you know, Object C++, something like that. And you were told to write a program in that. There would be sort of transferable skills that you could take over, but you wouldn't have the competency to write a, something in that to the same extent that somebody who is practiced in that can. Agreed. But just because somebody, yeah, just because somebody can't program in all the various languages, we wouldn't turn around and say, well, you can't program in every language, so you're not a computer programmer. It's <laughs> uh, a good analogy uh, if you're applying that to, to rationality. Yeah, just because <laughs> you're not used to thinking this sort of way about this thing doesn't mean you can't be rational in other aspects. Exactly. That, that's the way I see it anyway. Okay, so like I said, it could just be that participants in these rationality experiments are making performance or competency errors when they give their, their answers. They made mistakes rather than behaved irrationally. When we think about somebody behaving irrationally, we think about things like wishful thinking. I, I wish I could fly, so I'm going to jump off this building to prove I can or holding contradictions like i believe i'm nine foot tall but i don't duck under doors yeah it seems to me that thinking irrationally involves thinking a particular way not just making mistakes yes and i definitely agree with that i think rational people can make mistakes for different many different reasons other than the performance errors and like you mentioned with the competency errors but i also think sometimes overconfidence i suppose we could put that under a, a performance error anyway but if you're if you're so rational in these sort of things i mean maybe it's falling into dunning kruger really i'm really yeah. rational in all of these things therefore i think i'm at this level of rationality with everything and actually you're not because you're not as competent and 
yeah, it, it would be a competency error to be overcompetent because you've overestimated your competence. You just aren't competent enough to understand how incompetent you are. Uh, like you said, Donnie Kruger, basically. Okay, so when it comes to this, the pessimist would argue that you're looking at it wrong when you classify it this way. It's If we put these people under the ideal scenarios, they were perfectly awake, perfectly rested, and they were taught how to do these things, most people would still fail these tests. It's not perform problems, but actual fundamental problems with the cognitive systems. So there's a couple of comments that have come in that probably relate to this and what we said on the on the previous slide as well. Luke says, to be fair, even with our stats, we tend to have a confidence interval usually arbitrarily set at 95% confidence. So in science, there is a degree of error. And what's interesting is that many of the strong I'm rational types state that they only believe in facts, yet there is a degree of error still, and then they ber berate others because they're not 100% certain. Yeah. And the weird thing is, is a lot of those same people will berate somebody for not being 100% certain and holding a belief, but then say that they don't have any certainty about anything. <laughs> or that they only lack belief. <laughs> yeah. Evans makes a point, though. He says, the problem here is if we include learned skills relating to rationality as part of being human, then we must consider all people as welders because pretty much everyone could become a welder. I think that's a little bit different. I mean... If you're talking about a skill, then yeah, I mean, pretty much everyone could be a welder. But I think what we were talking about before with with learning skills, some people are more in tune to certain skills. Some people's bodies are more fundamentally built for uh, running. You know, some people are naturally talented at drawing and they can work on those skills and become better and better at them or ignore them completely. So... The same can be said for, for rationality. Some people have, you know, a, a, a head start in rationality, if you will, and they can have these skills to enhance the way they think and process things and get better at thinking. And I suppose that could be the same thing for some people are fundamentally bad at it. And they can still probably raise their game as well, but it would be harder for them and they'll never be good as good as someone who is just better at thinking. Yeah. And it also ignores that there may be other types of rationality than just this formalized probability theory and logical thinking. Um, there may be matters of everyday rationality that we have. And it could be said that if you fail at those, then maybe you could be considered fundamentally irrational. But to be fundamentally rational might mean just being able to go about your day-to-day -day lives in a successful way and, say, come up with successful methods of reasoning that guide you to truth. It may be that rationality is a multifaceted thing. 
could be an element of uh, coherence to it. I mean, one of the things we, we've said in the past is we think holding consistent and coherent beliefs should be part of rationality. But if if you think about it, if you're someone who's actually so incoherent you can't have a conversation with someone, then you're obviously not acting rationally. Say you've learned the entire English language, but every word, you say the wrong word, you're not you know, in line with what you're saying about day-to-day -day rationality, you're not able to communicate with everyone around you. You're not able to get on with things. If the only way you can drink is by throwing the glass over your shoulder, airplane reference, you know, you would say that that is not, you know, day-to-day -day rationality in that regard. You're not successfully achieving your goals and regularly and systematically not achieving them. Okay, so here's one principle of reasoning, and it's modus ponens. So it's basically, if A then B, it's worded a bit differently here. I've taken this from Edward Stein's uh, book. But you can also word it as, if A then B, A therefore B. So A, and if A, then B, and you have them both together, that entails B. So this kind of logic would give rise to the kind of following normative reasoning principle. If we believe A, and if we believe if A, then B, then it should be entailed that we believe B. And if we don't believe B, you could be said that you're being irrational. So if you believe all humans are mortal and you believe Socrates is a human, that should entail you believing Socrates is mortal. And if you believe all humans are mortal and Socrates is human and you turn around and say, well, no, that makes Socrates immortal. There's an error in reasoning there and you're being irrational. Yeah, I, I mean... Uh... On, on that, we sort of did a few uh, examples with uh, the article I wrote on what does it mean to be uh, logical as well, which go along this lines. But yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, we do actually see this quite a lot, shamefully, in the atheist community, where they'll say, God is imaginary. And if something is imaginary, that brings with it the entailment that it doesn't exist. But they'll turn around and say, I believe God is imaginary, but I don't believe God does not exist. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, that's it. That's, I've pointed that one out a number of times before. What is something that is imaginary? Something with no uh, objective reality, something that only lists, uh, exists in the imagination. Therefore, it does not exist. Oh, but I don't believe it doesn't exist. And then don't believe it's imaginary. No, it's definitely imaginary. It's a made up thing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that that would be an example of clearly irrational thinking. You would not be thinking according to the principles of logic, which is it's a sort of normative thing if you want to be considered rational or at least in this picture of rationality. And this is the conjunction principle, and it relates to the conjunction fallacy that we saw earlier with Linda. Mm -hmm. 
So the probability of some event A occurring cannot be less than the probability of A and some other event B occurring. Um, so it can't be more probable than that you're going to drive and crash than it is that you're just going to drive. Because there's an extra there's an extra weight to the claim then, and that lowers the probability of the claim because you're claiming these two events are going to occur. So it can't be the case. So the principle of reasoning that comes from this is that we should not attach a lesser degree of probability to event A than we do to both event A and the distinct event B occurring. So if we believe that there's a 50% chance that it's going to rain tomorrow and it's going to be 40 degrees, we should not believe that there's a less than 50% chance that it's going to rain because that percentage should be higher because you're only asking of it the one thing. Yep, that makes sense. Okay. We're, we're actually flying, th flying through this quite quick. I'm kind of impressed. <laughs> Okay, so the discourse around these experiments has led to the creation of new empirical hypotheses about the brain. How we think, how we process information, how the brain processes it, how the mind processes it, that kind of things. And these ideas include cognitive clutches, cognitive biases, cognitive heuristics, and cognitive modules. Luke's probably going to tell me off now. <laughs> oh he is he's coming back to one on the previous slide <laughs> so wait does that mean it's logically less probable that i will shoot someone in the head and kill them uh than it is that i will just shoot them in the head actually that that's true because yes. there are, are ways that people have been shot in the head and survived you know the skull can be quite thick it could miss the brain it could not hit a bit that damaging them they that too greatly the they could end up with just brain damage rather than being killed so i mean that's that's actually a good example of being shot in the head doesn't necessarily mean you're going to die. It's a high probability that you will, you know, but it's less than just shooting them in the head. Yeah. Okay, so a cognitive heuristic is basically a kind of shortcut in our thinking. It's the way our brain processes information where it turns it into this kind of shortcut that uses less power to actually process. And Tversky and Kahneman argue that the participants in the Linda case go wrong because they use an unconscious shortcut in reasoning. So these shortcuts happen without our being aware of them. So rather than answering the question directly, the participant instead unconsciously converts it into something like who does Linda resemble more? And if you think about some of your answers, you said, well, just because she's smart doesn't mean she would be a bank teller because that, you know, that doesn't resemble what a, a smart person might do. They might have problems with the thing and it doesn't necessarily, being smart doesn't necessarily lead to. But I can also understand why someone would have that bias there. They would go. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she's smart. That's the smartest job on there. So that that must yeah. be part of it. Oh, but she's also an activist. And duh, duh. 
Yeah. So you showed an example of how it can be turned into resemblance rather than probability. And they believe that that's because our brains have these kind of shortcuts built into them. Cognitive biases. And, yeah. And generally, these heuristics work. Like, we go about our day-to-day -day lives pretty successfully. And so it may be that to conserve information energy, our brains work this particular way and use resemblance rather than actually calculating a probability. And it can work 90% of the time because we're acting in real-world situations rather than attempting these formalized sort of questions. And that's why we're kind of shocked when these formal type of questions come up and we get them wrong. And it's believed that these shortcuts come about because of cognitive kludges in cognitive modules. So what is a cognitive module? It's basically specialized information, information processing systems in our brain. And these work at an unconscious level, just like the heuristics. And it's actually the idea of heuristics that led people like Tversky and Kahneman to consider brains as working in this way. And once we understand our minds work through cognitive modules, it becomes easy to understand how cognitive clutches work. So if we imagine that our brains evolve not to calculate probability, but to calculate resemblances. That rustling in that bush resembles the same rustling in the bush when there was a tiger that jumped out and killed my friend. So there's a chance that there's a tiger in that bush. So I, I should avoid that bush. It's a very hairy bush. <laughs> Well, it's got a tiger in it, you know, it's got to be hairy. <laughs> and so if we imagine that our cognitive systems evolved in this way for, not specifically for tracking probabilities, but for tracking resemblances that lead us to certain truths that keep us alive. Yeah. And it could be that when we look at the Linda experiment, it is actually the cognitive module for resemblances that's being activated and subconsciously pro uh, processing this question and giving you the answer in an efficient manner. Yeah. And you, you're not stopping to think about it. You're just getting the answer through these cognitive modules. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think that's why we are prone to all sorts of uh, superstitions because of things like assigning agencies to to rustling bushes and and all sorts. But you know, all sorts of beliefs that just because of the way we evolved and you know because of the resemblance thing that we're talking about here, yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So. These modules are built on from more similar modules, hence the cognitive kludge. So if we can imagine pre-language, pre-agriculture, we're just running around in the plains trying to survive hunting and gathering, 
we won't need the same kind of processing that we need when we become involved in agriculture and settlements. And as we evolve, nature cannot break down our brain and rewire the whole thing from scratch because that's not how evolution works. What it has to do is co-op certain systems and evolve that system into performing with these extra abilities. And these take time. Um, and it might be that when we calculate probability, because as we've become more and more advanced, we, we have more and more need for understanding probabilities. So it could be that evolution is co-opting the probability cognitive module, uh, resemblance cognitive module, because it thinks in a kind of similar way, and it, it makes it more efficient to calculate probabilities. But because it hasn't fully evolved yet or is co-opted, it doesn't necessarily work perfectly. And there's cross wires and it causes us to be bad at thinking in terms of probability. And it, like you said, this could lead to cognitive biases. And this is what we see in the waste and selection test. We see a kind of confirmation bias going on. Sorry, am I keeping you? No, no, my, my, my watch just vibrated. I, uh, I got it replaced and the move alerts are on and it just buzzed and it really annoys me. I need to turn them off. Basically ah, it tells okay. me to get off my fat ass and uh, walk around a bit. And I don't need anyone telling me to do that. That sort of thing actually makes me less inclined to move. <laughs> I have to do it, it with my be. own volition. And there's something telling me to do that makes me go, no, fuck off. How dare you tell me what to do? You're not my real watch. <laughs> yeah, so in the waste and selection test, it could be that because of these cognitive modules and these cognitive clutches and these heuristics, it creates a kind of confirmation bias. So when we're asked to falsify the voice and selection test, our brains process it in such a way that we try to affirm the hypothesis. We try to confirm it rather than disaffirm it. Mm -hmm. And that could be because it's successful at getting us around in real life. Confirming things happens to work enables us to think quicker and more clearly than disaffirming something. It takes less effort, you know, and it enables, like, if you, if you think the guy down the road who's always looking at you as though he's going to rob you, isn't going to rob you and you, you have to test it, <laughs> it's not going to be as successful as just... Just avoiding him. <laughs> just, yeah. But this is a point in favor of the pessimistic theories, because if we have these obvious flaws in our cognitive processing systems, then we have obvious flaws when it comes to thinking according to the standard picture of rationality. We are fundamentally flawed when it comes to reasoning in a rational way. Luke says, this is, oh, hang on, sorry, let me bring that up. This is why many scientific facts actually appear counterintuitive. Yeah. 
because we're expecting to see something like the affirmation of something rather than the disaffirmation of something. Mm. And it could also explain why a lot of people misunderstand what the null hypothesis is. Because <laughs> they're thinking in ways that something must be, a, you know, it must be confirmed. And yeah. So the null hypothesis is waiting for something to be confirmed. <laughs> Which is, it's not the case. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> okay, so that's pretty much all the empirical stuff that's, or not all of it, but, you know, a quick introduction to the empirical arguments and the, the way that pessimists argue for it. But optimists also say that these things could also be taken in a positive light because it could mean that the more and more that we practice these thinking rationally and thinking in particular ways, we can evolve better cognitive processes and we can become more rational and therefore become fundamentally rational. Or that, you know, we're just fundamentally rational, it's just that there's glitches in our systems. So now the question becomes, is rationality purely empirical or could it be conceptual? I think you're going to have to elaborate, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it could be the case that the rationality thesis isn't something that can be right or wrong. We're not talking about something that exists out there in the world. Rationality isn't sort of a feature of the world. It's a concept that we've come up with. So the standard picture of rationality is a concept that we've come up with to describe how one ought to reason. So to say that the rationality thesis is wrong is akin to saying something like a triangle can't, uh, it, we could be wrong that a triangle has three sides. Right. But obviously with that, that's, that's saying like a, a triangle is definitionally that thing. Yeah. Which is, and that is, could be the case with rationality. We're defining it in this way, and we're using an improper definition rather than the so claim being wrong. Is this, not a claim, this align, along the lines of what you're saying, though, in, about how it, we could just need to define it in a... In a, a a, a more broader way or is a that a more nuanced way yeah but is that is that still adhering to well actually no the the rationality thesis can be true it's just not telling the whole picture at the moment whereas yeah. if you're saying it's false it's actually no it's just you know something that we we have defined ourselves and actually it maybe doesn't actually adhere to reality at all. Something along those kind of lines, yeah. It's like high jump is sort of a feature of the world. I mean, you've got the poles, you've got the bar, people jump, people jump over the high bar. But it could just be that um, we've set the bar so high, nobody can jump over it. And therefore we're saying, well, nobody can do high jump then. People are fundamentally bad at high jump. Whereas if we lower the bar, 
people can jump over it. <laughs> because we're going beyond the humans. Going beyond what, Dave? Sorry, you cut out there. We're going beyond the capability of humans' ability to jump. So it's not that people are fundamentally bad at high jump. It's just that we're sort of doing looking at high jump wrong. <laughs> and I do know that you had somebody recently who said that they could be wrong about triangles having three sides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that was in the conversation with Luke, although I did chime in a little bit before that. And yes, someone actually said <laughs> that maybe triangles don't have three sides. <laughs> and they also said that they didn't believe they were human. They might not be, because they could be a brain in a vat, so therefore they don't believe that they're human. <laughs> yeah, I'm so I'm such a super smart rational skeptic that I absolutely have no beliefs. I'm sure you believe that. No, I don't believe that. So you don't believe that you have no... No, I... Oh. Yeah. I mean, you can make an argument here, something like, well, triangle is just a word that we use to the to describe a particular concept. And therefore, we could imagine some other universe where the word triangle refers to an object with four equal sides. But then you're still wrong about a triangle having more than three sides because you're talking about a different concept. Yeah, you're also talking about a different universe. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. it's, it's so, like water being H2O. It's definitionally so. Yeah, um, yeah, that's it. So anybody who wants to argue, well, we could be wrong about triangles having three sides. No, we can't. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be rude or anything, you know. <laughs> okay, so there's three sort of arguments that come from philosophers about this and about the idea of rationality being conceptual rather than empirical. Or, well, there's three groups of philosophers, so to speak. So Sosa and Galloway take a very different approach to the problem of whether or not we are fundamentally irrational or fundamentally rational. And what they do is they outright reject the standard picture of rationality. They're not arguing that thinking rationally is not thinking logically or thinking using probability theory. They agree it is these things, but they're arguing that the standard picture is just too demanding and we shouldn't be looking at rationality as some kind of Boolean thing where you either are rational or aren't rational. They look on it as indexical. So it's something like height or eyesight or shoe size or, you know, there is a baseline average that goes through society. And to be rational is to just at least be at that particular index. So if you think about IQ, I think 100 is supposed to be the average or something. Mm -hmm. And if you're under this line, you have problems with intelligence. If you're over this line, you have better skills and intelligence, I guess, whatever you want to call it. 
and they think of they think rationality should be looked at as that so that there's this you can be more rational you can be less rational but to say that humans are fundamentally irrational is to just be making a nonsense statement because you can't be fundamentally irrational because humans have this rational ability or at least baseline baseline rationality yeah i mean i i I can i can understand that argument it uh it seems to make sense do they do they have an upper limit on on the rationality then you know is there sort of an absolute scale that the baseline fits in or is it just a case of this top layer goes up and down potentially with generations and that line in the middle is just the baseline for the generation baseline for the generation or the population or whichever group is being measured Um, and i suppose if you could measure every person on the planet you could have this sort of de facto baseline for the whole of humanity. But that baseline will rise if people become more rational. So if the average population becomes more rational and you don't, then you would be considered less rational. Verging on the irrational because they still think that thinking uh, using logic and probability theory counts as part of being rational yeah fair okay there is one problem with this though Mm -hmm. and that's if we consider it in that way where there is just this baseline that is based on the average ability for people to be rational If you imagine a society where the average person will chase a chicken off a cliff to try and catch food. Yeah, and that's irrational for that society. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, they're still using probability theory to some extent that I'm probably going to catch the chicken before we both fall off the edge of the cliff. But I haven't. And I'm dead. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No. It, well, I mean, there's, there's plenty of issues with with the the IQ method as well. Which, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, and this is sort of along the same lines as that. I'm just wondering if, again, they're they're trying to describe a different way of looking at it, but they're just they're just not quite thinking about. Yeah, like I think that maybe there is this this sort of average, but the average isn't a moving average. You know, like if if we had all the things at the top that are to be perfectly rational, let's just say like it it might differ, it might be contextual for different situations, but to be perfectly rational in situation X, you need all of these things to get there. And if you hit, say, an 80% quotient of these things to be perfectly rational. We could quite easily say that you're acting rationally in that regard. But, you know, and there could be this average of what people do, (laughs) but that doesn't tell you as much as actually you need to do at least this much to get there. Yeah. 
And I think the idea does have some merit because people are obviously more and less rational than each other. You know, there's a, a million people I can name more rational than me and a million people I can name that are less rational than me. Or, well, maybe four. <laughs> but yeah, you know what I mean? It's So there is something to it. So we could say that you're only reaching this bar of rationality so what can we do to help you improve your rational thinking? Mm. But I don't think, like, they want to replace the new standard picture with to think rationally is to reason according to the rules of logic and probability theory to the standard that people on average do. And I don't think that would do as a standard picture of rationality. No, I, I can agree with a qualifier like we were mentioning earlier, you know, like a three-year-old can only be as rational as a three-year-old can be. And in that regard, you would take on board averages in that, you know, like we'd expect. So if we have this absolute line for, you know, someone who's 30 years old, that absolute line wouldn't necessarily be as high, say for a three-year-old, that would be that, that would be their, their top line. And I do think that we do need these adjustment adjustments for, for different things, but I don't think, yeah, as, as you mentioned on average for what people do, <laughs> because I mean, yeah. even in that regard, you'd, you'd also, I know, I mean, it would be, this is taking it to an absurd level, but you'd then include three-year-olds in that average as well. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't quite work. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got some merits. I do think it has some merits. Like most philosophical kind of accounts, there is some merits to it, but it's not the whole picture. And it's, I don't think it makes a particularly good argument for changing the standard picture. Yeah, I'd agree. Okay, so Chater and Oxford. Now, I kind of like this approach. They think of rationality in a couple of different ways. So we have what's known as everyday rationality and formal rationality. Everyday rationality is slightly more informal. And it's based on a sort of consequentialist approach. So if you can behave in such a way that you generate true beliefs, and you can stay alive, you can manage to function in society, you know that when you run out of milk in your fridge, you need to go buy more milk, you have no food in the fridge, you come back from holiday, say, and the power's gone out and your fridge is, you know, gone off and all the food's gone bad. You could be considered rational if you then think about buying a new fridge and you don't use that to make the meal when you get home because the food's rotten, because it brings you bad consequences. And you'd be more rational to go out and buy more food or get a takeaway. And people generally do tend to be quite rational in their day-to-day -day lives. Maybe not particularly good at certain kinds of thinking, but with regards to actually going out and about and getting around, and most people that drive can drive pretty well, 
most people can hold down a job. You know, there, there's a certain level of rationality, and it would seem counterintuitive to say that people just aren't rational on average in their day-to-day -day lives because most people seem to function pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, and they think that you can have normative principles that come from this as well. I've not written it all down here because it's quite a big argument and involves various different things. But it could be said that if we consider it from a consequentialist approach, we can imagine ironing your clothes in a rational way, in a way that brings about the best result. And the normative principles of reasoning for doing ironing are simply these particular ways of doing ironing that brings about the best results or making egg fried rice, as Uncle Roger says. <laughs> yeah, so acting rationally is just bringing about these good consequences and managing to survive your daily lives and doing things as best as they could be. So, I mean, I'm going to jump the gun and say if we're saying the informal or everyday rationality is uh, a form of consequentialist rationality, does that make the formal one almost the virtue ethics version of rationality? No, it's oh. more... Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, if you want to put it that way, you could say perhaps it's a deontological way. No. Um, because... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> because it's about reasoning using the kind of standard picture that I mentioned at the beginning, which is a very strict, formal definition of what it means to be behaving rationally. Yeah. So here's the formal rationality. And so formal rationality kind of accounts for the kind of things that we were saying before. So using good probable, probabilistic reasoning, using good logical inferences, and say, behaving properly on the waste and selection test. And they're linked to particular theories. So like you have logical calculi that formalizes aspects of deductive reasoning, which takes us back to, say, the modus ponens kind of principle that we spoke about earlier. Axiomatic probability formalizing probabilistic reasoning. So we have probable probability theories that we can use to determine the probability of things. And in these formal settings, if we're not using that, then we're not behaving rationally. So in science, we would use these things. And we would be irrational if we didn't use these things in scientific investigation. And so sort of theory choice where we use utility and decision theory, attempting to characterize rational preferences and rational choices in uncertain actions. So there's these more formal types of rationality as well. So to say that we are fundamentally irrational because we don't behave according to formal rationality would be to argue incorrectly it would be to kind of compare everyday rationality to formal rationality and say well 
every day isn't behaving according to formal, so therefore everyday rationality is just irrational. And there seems to be a conceptual error there for me. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And th this is my sort of preferred idea about rationality, along with a few other things like you can only be as rational as you can be and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah. And now we're on to the final one now. We've actually gone through this pretty damn quick, really, considering all the information that's been crammed in here. <laughs> David Papineau takes a similar kind of view as Chater and Oxford, except it's a little bit different. He again takes a consequentialist stance. And for David Papineau, to reason rationally is just to reason well to the extent that it leads to true beliefs. So the better you are leading to true beliefs, the more rational you are, the more rational your belief formation systems. What about in the instance where you don't know if a belief is true or not then? Oh, we lost you, Dave. What do you mean? Oh, hello? Hello. Yeah, sorry. Uh, what about in an instance where we don't know if a belief is true or not? So you've reasoned and you've come to this belief, but actually you don't know whether it's it your your belief is true. So how can you judge that as rational under this? You would take it more on a cumulative base. So. Right, so like 90 of my 100 beliefs are all true, and these remaining 10 are uh, unknown, but I feel that I've reasoned sufficiently to get yeah. me there. And... Yeah, if 90 out of 100 times you've reasoned a successful belief true formation, and those beliefs sort of form how you came to those last 10 beliefs, it seems to me that the actual belief formation your pers uh, process you're using is successful. And the fact that those previous 90 are true and those final 10 follow on from it means that they are most likely true, even if you can't prove it. Yeah, no, no, that, that does make sense. Although that goes back into it being potentially an error as well or overconfidence in your own ability just because yeah, you've, yeah, you know a bit, bit of inductive reasoning there well i've got i was right the last 90 times so i'm going to assume i'm going to be right the next 10 um but that that's why it's it says to the extent that your belief formation leads to true belief so if most of your beliefs end up being true based on your belief formation system it could be said that you are reasoning pretty rationally there. If 20% of your beliefs are true, based on your belief formation system, it would seem that you're not really forming those beliefs in a particularly <laughs> rational way. I mean, those 20% of beliefs that you have that are true might have been accidental. You might have just been told some bit of information that you took on board and that other person reasons pretty well, so you've taken on board that. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but David Papineau adds a couple more things here. So 
to be rational would also be to form significant beliefs, beliefs that matter. If all your if your belief formation system only leads to the formation of very trivial beliefs, like I'm going to lie down on the couch in a minute, rather than I think murder is unacceptable. I think child abuse should be combated. If your belief formation system leads to, well, it's got nothing to do with me. That belief isn't particularly significant. So it could be said that you're not reasoning in a particularly rational way. And another thing that he adds to the qualifier for what it means to form beliefs in a rational way is that it's efficient. So imagine now somebody who counts all the blades of grass in his garden. <laughs> now, he's formed a true belief, but it doesn't seem to be a particularly significant belief, unless that's <laughs> going to go on to lead him to win a million pounds. <laughs> but if he's just done it for the sake of finding out what's true... It doesn't seem to be a particularly rational thing because that belief isn't particularly significant. And he's also not been very efficient with his belief formation. Because <laughs> what, what the hell does it matter how many blades of grass are in that person's garden? And counting them one by one, you know, it is, yeah. <laughs> you could look, go, I estimate it to be so-and-so, that's good enough. And the reason he finds these to matter and for this kind of rationality to matter is that these things are important when it comes to concepts like justified belief and knowledge, especially as justified true belief. If we're not doing it in a particularly efficient or significant matter, we're not being very pragmatic and we're not being very rational. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Sorry. And I'm nodding away. Obviously. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Yeah. With, this, with the crap outs that we've had the last hour or so. I, um, <laughs> well, no, I, I should realize, so, you know, I've got a microphone in front of me. I should be using it. But I was just thinking about it all. So in my head, just nodding away whilst I go, oh, it's yeah. It's a lot no, to no. take in. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to take in. So he sort of distinguishes again between two different types of rationality and these are both to do with belief formation so most people are fundamentally rational fundamentally competent at reasoning rationally reasoning in a rational way if they form these true beliefs even if they sometimes make errors and Epistemic rationality. Now uh, you're talking about crap out. So you just you just did, about... Dave. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're back. You're back. Yeah. Okay. So there's the wide rationality thing. One applies to generally our everyday lives. Yeah. So sort of similar to Chater and Oaks for everyday rationality, and um, and. He also has an epistemic rationality thesis. Most people are fundamentally competent at reasoning in, in an epistemically rational way, even if they sometimes make performance errors. And this has to do with the fact that people form significant beliefs and in an efficient manner. 
so those are some other attempts at writing a slightly different kind of rationality thesis and looking at rationality in a different way. So a claim like most people are fundamentally rational could be true according to some of these theses. But the question then is, do we lose the normativity power of what it means to be rational and reasoning in a rational way by rescuing the rationality thesis? Do we lose what makes it worth saving, so to speak, with these theories? I don't think so with Shader and Oxford, maybe with Soze and Galloway because you're, there's no normative sort of idea behind what it means to reason rationally. You reason like your neighbor, so therefore you're rational. <laughs> you know, wouldn't, shouldn't I be reasoning better than my neighbor if he's just an average reasoner? And what does yeah. it mean to reason better if being rational is just reasoning like your next door neighbor? Um, and the same with David Papineau. I don't think it lose it. There's a certain substance to the rationality thesis there. No, I'd agree. I, I, it does seem, you know, just the, the, the standard model just seems very, very, very strict in that regard. And I think it, it does miss out on some of the nuance, but I, I wonder why the, the standard model is as it is though. Like, why is it as, fixed as that I, I obviously people are trying to change it but the fact of the matter is they they haven't successfully changed it otherwise their thoughts would be the standard model now i'm terrible with names but the people before david papineau made a lot of sense i would Chater still chader and oaksford yeah thank you but i would still add more into that myself to to, to have a more you know, complete picture. But these are probably people that are far more cleverer than me. So why haven't they thought of it? <laughs> if you go deeper into the like the literature that they write, there are things like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but this is just sort of brief definitions. Yeah. You know, sort fair. of like saying atheism is the belief God does not exist. It, but it goes deeper than that when you look at it. It's, you know, there, there it's is all the arguments and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even all the arguments about how it should be defined, but there's more to atheism yeah, than that as well. Yeah, that's part of atheism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. And there we go. That's it. Ah, awesome. All right. Well, I tell you what, we've got, if anyone wants to ask any questions, Luke's already put one in, but it, we will switch things back and get your questions and comments or anything in there. And we will be back in just a jiffy. And hopefully I won't exit Discord <laughs> <laughs> as I sometimes do when I uh, switch things out. So we'll be right back. So yes, don't worry, Luke, I'm not going to forget you. So Luke asks, what about simulation theory? It's more probable, but is it rational to believe it? I'd have to contest it being more probable. I've heard arguments for why it is more probable and why it isn't more probable, and I don't know enough 
to actually qualify whether it is or it isn't. There's a podcast there, two physicists were talking about how ridiculous the idea of simulation theory is, whereas I've heard other people saying, well, actually, if you think about any intelligent race that would have the ability to create an artificial universe, they probably would. And if one can, then they probably have, and therefore it, you know, we, we could be in one. So I genuinely don't know which side is more probable than the other, because I've heard two arguments. I'd say it's most rational to be pragmatic and deal with the reality that we have right now. Whether you take, you know, whether it's rational to believe simulation theory or not, I'd say part of that is all the arguments that have convinced you and having read ones that go the other way and having good reasons to disbelieve one side and believe the other. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of in the same boat. I don't know enough about the probability or the argument. Um, but I would say it seems to be perfectly, if you think about the modus ponens principle, where if you believe A, A entails B, then you should believe B. If you believe that the universe is natural, and believing that the universe is natural entails believing that it's not a simulation theory, then it would be logical to believe that it's not a simulation theory. And I'm not really sure how the probability would be calculated. So, No, I mean, I think the probability argument does come from, I mean, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on this, Luke, but it is from the fact that if you look at how like we've created things like the sims and we've hypothesized about building simulated universes ourselves we've got movies about it i mean even things like the matrix where it's a computer generated world rather than universe but we've got all of these things that we can say well actually if we can conceive it if we can do a really basic version and we can imagine that say I don't know, a couple of hundred years down the line, we might be able to have the technology to do it ourselves, then it could be something that's already done. And we are just that sort of simulation and that's it playing out up until this point. You know, we could just be an ethics engine and testing out different forms of ethics and seeing how yeah. things go. Yeah, you'd need to bring in something like theory choice here and rational choice theory and things like that. I mean, if you want to go with the simulated universe hypothesis and say that it's probable because we have these experiences and these questions about we can hypothesize about how we can create one of these types of universes as a simulation. Do you know what sea monkeys are? Yeah, as in get the little, little ones. Yeah, your, yeah, put them in. Yeah, and they always died within a week. <laughs> yeah, we have experience of people putting sea monkeys in a bowl, and their whole universe is that bowl. So it seems that it could also be probable that we are nothing but sea monkeys on a shelf in a kid's bedroom in the universe. That seems probable too. How probable? I don't know. But what I can say is that we seem to have evidence that we exist in some kind of real world. So I'm going to go with that evidence. I consider that to be slightly more rational. Especially as I'm a naturalist.
Yeah, yeah. You'd almost be contradicting yourself, as you mentioned there. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Luke, hopefully that, that sort of answers it. You know, I'm just because we can hypothesize it, just because we can imagine it, just because we can think of ways it could be done doesn't necessarily mean that it is and that we are. And I, I genuinely don't know how... I mean, calculating the probability for something like that is incredibly phenomenal. I don't know if we can, but here's one for you, Dave. <laughs> is it rational to believe to in Laplace's demon? <laughs> it's only rational to believe in Laplace's demon to the extent that it convinces Luke that determinism is true. <laughs> I'll be two a, seconds. <laughs> no worries. So, guys, is there anyone out there with any more questions? Or have I missed any comments from earlier on in the stream? I know that we did get into a bit of a conversation about IQ. And that is one of those things where IQ is one of those things that isn't completely perfect. It's, it is very, very localized. Like, if you were to get someone who was born and raised in, I don't know, say Nigeria, to take a test over from, from the UK or the, the States, they would do unbelievably poor at it. But that doesn't mean that they're, they're not intelligent. I think the whole IQ thing, it's generally indicative of how quick you can think and how quick you can pick things up. But that doesn't mean that having a high IQ automatically makes you right, smart, or rational. There are people with a lower IQ that know a hell of a lot more than people with a high IQ that can be more skilled workers. So IQ isn't the be-all and end-all. It's just an indicator that says you should be able to do great things. <laughs> doesn't mean you will. Yeah, if you think an IQ test can tell you anything really objective and that the questions are actually useful beyond a cultural context, all you have to do is look into the Torres Strait studies from, I think it's the early 1900s or late 1800s, where they gave these children IQ tests that were generally given there at that time to children in the West and the, the kids couldn't figure any of it out. And then they realized that these group of people were actually farmers and they were traders and they were sellers and that kind of thing. And they changed the IQ test to take this into account. And all these children excelled and the Western children didn't do quite as well on these tests as those people. Which shows that with a test like that, it's, it's sort of inherently flawed. Luke actually makes a comment saying that it's a tool developed for eugenics. It should be appearing on the screen. There it is. It was lagging a little bit at the moment. I mean, it could be. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, the thing is, if it's a tool developed for eugenics and you're actually trying to get people to, to, to hit a higher IQ, that would just shift the average anyway, because it works off a, an average. So that 100 should always be what that 100 is. If, if everybody starts hitting above 100, they just move where the 100 is, and everybody gets dumber. <laughs> so if you say it's a tool to develop for eugenics, then it's not really an effective one, is it? <laughs> it's a tool used by the bourgeoisie 
to make themselves feel superior to the proletariat because they pay a lot of money for their education. And yet we know that a, a highly paid for education isn't always going to make anyone any smarter or more rational than anyone else. Some people get really, really bad grades at these, these high education places. And then that doesn't even mean that they're not actually skilled. It could just mean that they weren't interested in their education as well. And therefore they scored poorly. So even your grades you get in school are not always indicative of, of what you can be. If you think being rich and going to a good public school makes you smart and well-informed and educated, et cetera, et cetera, I just introduce you to our prime minister. <laughs> yeah. And I think there are some memory, members of the, the royal family who, who went to Eton and, you know, ended up with E's and D's and, and, and in, their, in their schooling as well. So even though they've got this high paid for education, uh, you know, they didn't really get anything out of it. They didn't need to either, though. So maybe they just okay. coasted. I, I would. Yeah. <laughs> they went to the right school. They know the right families. It's not like they're going to fail in life because they have bad grades. No, exactly. And then it doesn't necessarily mean that if they had applied themselves, they wouldn't have been able to get better grades as well. You know, it's. I think there's a big problem with the education system in the regard that it tries to fit everybody into the same box and teach them the same same things in the same way and you you know you don't get the right teacher for you you don't learn the right subjects for you you don't learn in the right way for you and all of a sudden there's so many people who are regarded as dumb and disobedient and you know bad thinkers when actually they just don't fit the box that their school wants them to have. Yeah. Oh, hey, Twisted, nice of you to come in. Unfortunately, I think you've just missed most of the stream and uh, we're just finishing up on the questions, but we're, we've been covering off the rationality thesis tonight. So if you've got a question, <laughs> get it in now. <laughs> Dyslexia and autism crew checking in. <laughs> yeah. I'm dyslexic and have ADHD. I struggled at school. I did I all right as out. well, though. <laughs> yeah, I got asked to leave. <laughs> so I didn't get officially kicked out. I got the, if you don't leave, we will kick you out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I hear you there, dude. I hear you there. <laughs> but that, I mean, that, that in itself, and I think it's great. I think there is progress being made, and I think it's good that there are more you know, media programs that ha do sort of normalize things like autism and dyslexia. And, you know, they, they, they can show you that these people just because they're, they're different doesn't make them dumb. They just deal with situations in a different way. And I think that's great. Probably still not enough of it. And I think some people still don't pick up on it enough. And I think the education system's probably still too rigid in that regard to be fully flexible enough. You have to learn this way because this is the way we do it. This is one of the reasons why I mentioned discussing this. Yes, the social construction of reality. So did you did you want to cover that one off on Thursday, seeing as we've had to change what we were going to do on Thursday? Or would you like to I give it a couple of weeks? 
yeah, I need to reread some stuff on it just to get it all fresh in my head again. I, I know the basic concepts and stuff, but I'd like to do a slideshow like this kind of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I know I know we've got some coming up. I mean, we want to do tes testimony covering off the philosophical side, and we'd like to do that with both Luke and Philip, and maybe Alistair. And Alistair, yeah. Yeah, and obviously we want to do Philip's logic one that he wants to, to do as well. So, I mean, that's next week. But Thursday, if we can't think of anything... We could always do an article reading of The Truth of It All, if you'd like to go over that one. But if you do have anything else, I'm, I'm, I'm always open up to ideas. Also, if anyone out there has anything that they would like us to cover off in future streams, or there's a stream that we've done that you want us to go into more detail, because a lot of the streams that we do are, you know, overviews of topics, because... I mean, so many things are more complicated than people realise. And if we can do a two-hour stream, which is just the basics overview, not going into the detail, imagine what we could do if you go, actually, there was this bit that I was really interested in. Tell me about it. It might end up being a three-parter. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah, in the comments or, you know, send us a DM on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere like that. Or send us an email at admin at answersinreason.com. Admin at answers-in-reason.com, that is. And we will get back to you and hopefully do a stream. Oh, and uh, Twisted is saying he's holding out for an Answers in Reason and Perspective Philosophy crossover. <laughs> I I don't know if, if that would ever happen, but I'd be open to it. <laughs> but I, I don't think that I anywhere near to that level. I'm just someone that gets to ask the dumb questions. That's like my entire purpose here. <laughs> and I'm someone that occasionally says something thing that's right <laughs> awesome well if there are no more questions for tonight then i think that we can call it a wrap and uh, yeah thank you very much for that dave that was really good i like the fact that you've, uh, you've got the backgrounds and different fonts and stuff like that it's a really good presentation slowly yeah, really good presentation. And um, what Thank I'll do you. is, if you can send that to me, I will turn it into a PDF and throw it on the site when I do the podcast version as well. Yeah, no worries. I'm going to upload the slides onto the Discord anyway, so... All right, I'll grab it from there. Cool. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you very much, everybody who has listened in, especially those who have joined us in the chat asking questions. You have been listening to the Fresh Air Sci-Fi show going over the rationality thesis. And I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. Have yourselves a good night, all. Good night, all. Thank you for joining. <laughs>